Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 49, Zaire the Greek. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Gamble when we gamble. Print your weekly feminist newsletter when we print our weekly feminist newsletter. Today, I'll be talking about Season 3, Episode 14, Lisa the Greek, which first aired on January the 23rd, 1992, two weeks after the last episode. And I'm going to be talking about Zaire. Nowadays, it's called the Democratic Republic of the Congo, but back in 1992, it was under the waning dictatorship of President Mobutu Sisi Soko. Although I'll be using it as an excuse to talk about the Belgian colonial empire as well, the event in question is the attack on Kinshasa's state radio station by army rebels on January the 22nd, 1992, the day before Lisa the Greek was first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. So, January 23rd, 1992. And as I'm sure many of you will be aware, a mere four days before this episode aired, the nature boy Ric Flair outlasted 29 other men in a Royal Rumble match, last eliminating the immortal Hulk Hogan and Psycho Sid Justice to win his first WWF World Championship. But Gareth, I hear you cry, we're not interested in that. Tell us what the UK number one was that week. Well, and don't panic. It's wet, wet, wet. But it's all right. It's not that one. It's Goodnight Girl. (sighs) As I think most people will be aware, the wets will be splashing back in with a lengthy bang at some stage during our tenure. And I didn't even know this song went to number one, let alone that it dethroned Queen of all people at this stage. Annoyingly, it's an interesting and varied top ten as well. So had Queen stayed at number one, I could have talked about upcoming rave outsiders, the prodigy at number three, rock royalty in kiss at number four, Kylie, who I always like to visit with at number five, reinvented former proggers Genesis at seven. And even further down, we had the wonder stuff, the sugar cubes, public enemy, Kingmaker, Mark Armand, Daisy Chainsaw, and Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine. But no, let's talk about Wet 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 instead. Yeah. Formed in 1982 in Clydebank. Oh, even their history's boring. Oh. <laughs> the Scottish Wuss Rockers took their name from a song by the much more interesting band Scritty Politti, who I wish I was talking about, and came to the attention of most in 1986 with the single Wishing I Was Lucky. Their first number one, a cover of the Beatles' With a Little Help From Our Friends, came in 1988, and then there was this, and then the other one. <laughs> they effectively split up in 1999 after trying to shaft their drummer out of his royalties, uh, and Marty Pello going off to kick some habits. But they reformed in 2004, and then Marty Pello left again in 2017. So their lead singer is now someone off Liberty X. What? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. The most interesting thing about the band is their unofficial fifth member, Graham Duffin, who basically never appears with them, but is involved with their studio work. And that's it. 
that's wet, wet, wet covered entirely. So when the inevitable happens, I'm going to talk about the trogs instead. Okie dokie. The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 14.2. That's approximately 13 million viewing households. It was the highest rated show on Fox and the 27th highest rated across all networks. The production number was 8F12. And the credited writers are Jay Kogan and Wallace Wolodarski, as we discussed in episode three, The Morris Worms Odyssey. The chalkboard gag doesn't exist because we jump straight to the family arriving home. But there is a couch gag, which is Homer sitting on Santa's little helper. And I think we've already seen that one this season, but I could be wrong. So what happens in the episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to watch some football. Homer is watching Inside Football today for all the latest analysis to help him ahem, enhance his enjoyment of the day's action from the pivotal eighth week of the NFL season, with snacks aplenty to help him through all six hours thereof, leading to the first hints of a dicky ticker for the big man. And luckily, he has the advice of a man who's right 52% of the time to heed, one smooth Jimmy Apollo. When Jimmy extremely non-committedly announces the Denver Broncos as the one to pick if you're one of those compulsive types who absolutely has to gamble, Homer is straight on the phone to his illegal bookmaker, whose identity may surprise you. It, it's Mo, of course. It's, it's Mo. <laughs> Lisa wants some validation from Homer for her construction of a modest studio apartment for her Malibu Stacy dolls. But the Broncos are already down after 13 seconds, so he's away with the fairies. Mars suggests to Lisa that she tried to take an interest in something Homer likes and build a rapport from there. Although Marge's examples of things she's done to build rapport with Homer include some things I'll tell you about when you're older. <laughs> so she watches the Patriots against the Broncos. While we get what passes for a B plot here as Marge takes Bart shopping for new clothes. Um, I'll, I'll cover it all here. Basically, Marge buys him the kind of clothes that get you beaten up at school. And we see him in situations that imply he'll be beaten up at school. <laughs> Sometimes it's not rocket science. Yeah, I, I, I loved that sequence when I was a kid because I very much sympathized with Bart in that situation, especially when <laughs> being told, oh, I'm tired. Can I just lie down for a minute? <laughs> <laughs> My my favourite bit of that sequence, to be fair, is the is the uh, the shotgun toting security guards confronting a a prepubescent sock thief, uh, <laughs> which is which is grand with me, quite frankly. Yeah, that's great. Um, so inevitably, the Broncos lose, uh, and Smooth Jimmy is forced to concede that when you're right fifty two percent of the time, you're wrong forty eight percent of the time. But for the next game, he declares Miami his lock of the week accompanied by a freakishly big padlock as a visual aid. But Homer gets a second opinion from another channel, which cites Cincinnati as their shoe-in of the week, accompanied by a freakishly... You get the picture. Hey, maybe this is why Rod and Todd were praying for giant shoes in Season 5, Episode 9, The Last Temptation of Homer. <laughs> Homer also consults two other sources, Professor Frink's Gambletron 2000 and the coach's hot line <laughs> and when none of these sources bear fruit he asks lisa for a hunch and she goes for the dolphins and they win but in the course of his celebrations homer is forced to reveal to lisa that he's gambling on the outcomes of the games and wins her over surprisingly easily with an ice cream analogy before swearing her to secrecy 
Turns out that Lisa has three things that will improve their chances of successful betting. Firstly, a knack for guessing correctly in the early going. Secondly, a willingness to throw herself into statistical research to stay ahead of the curve, even if it means braving the madhouse that is the barely populated library. (laughs) And thirdly, a psychological insight that spotlights the fear and lies of intimidated players. Couple all this with knowing the golden rule of American football, the Raiders always cheat, and she's absolute dynamite. And this pays off for the family in a few ways, financially, obviously, and everyone's benefiting from the fancy dinners, but more directly for Lisa in the amassing of every possible Malibu Stacy accessory. Oh, and then there's Bart's excellent sound box. Tom, can you remember the three phrases he could summon up at the touch of a button? Shut up, shut up. Kiss my butt, kiss my butt, go to hell. Excellent. I, I had a feeling you'd. I had a feeling you'd get that. I think that's that's, <laughs> that's scarred across my brain from early viewings. Yes, definitely. But perhaps more importantly, Sunday has become Daddy Daughter Day. There is, for the first time, we've actually seen a palpable bond beyond that of simple blood between Homer and Lisa. And ever would it have remained so, except for the sad reality of almost all sports: the season has to end sometime, and in more ways than one, as Homer relatively innocently agrees to go bowling with Barney on the Sunday after the upcoming Super Bowl, which for clarity is Super Bowl 26, which is the actual Super Bowl that took place in 1992. Around this time, Lisa starts to have a crisis of conscience as she becomes aware during a class presentation how strange it is for a child to be speaking in heavy betting terms. Homer also has to come clean to Marge due to the large amount of money he's bringing in which puts her in a great position to chastise Homer when he inevitably upsets Lisa with the news that he won't be observing Daddy-Daughter Day in the off-season. After a betting-related nightmare, Lisa gives away all her ill-gotten dollhouse accessories, before Homer almost gets her back on side, but makes the mistake of asking for her tip for the Super Bowl winner. Lisa states that if she still loves Homer, the Washington (coughs) football team will win. And if she doesn't, It'll be the Buffalo Bills. I'd like to briefly divert, if I may, and let's face it, I may, to the recent renaming of the Washington football team from their previous racist moniker. All the fantastic things that Washington brings to mind, the imagery, the history, and they went for football team. Idiots. (laughs) In 30 seconds, I came up with the Washington presidents, the Washington senators, the Washington Lincolns, if you want to go partisan, and then it hit me. So, what is the team known for? Having a racist name. What would be the ultimate thing you could call that team in response? Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Washington Americans. (laughs) And imagine the advertising opportunities. I mean, American Airlines is a shoe-in for a start. But what product wouldn't want to sponsor what would basically become America's football team? And how could opposing fans root against them anymore? What? Do they hate Americans? I tell you, I'm an ideas man. You can have that one for free, but at some stage I'd like to actually get some money from someone. So if anyone out there has heard my immense genius and wants to offer me a job, hit me up at the podcast email address. Let's make a deal. Nice. I I think they should have taken their name from... Lisa Simpson's essay should have called themselves the Washington cesspools. Excellent. And again, they, you know, they could uh, get sponsorship from United cesspool. Uh... 
Anyway, um, a, a necessary diversion, I feel. But back to the episode. After a very brief view of the Frenchmen from uh, Grapes of Wrath, which was an unwelcome reminder that Season 1 exists, Homer can't concentrate on the game at all with Lisa's mournful sax in the background. So he goes to Moe's. Just in time to see Troy McClure discuss his new project, Handle with Care, where retired cop Jack Handle shares a flat with a retired criminal who I've always assumed is called Bob Care. Mm-hmm. They're the original odd couple. It sounds unnervingly close to a Lee and Herring creation, but, but let's move on. We're nearly at the end. Homer has more than money riding on the game, but so does Lisa. And after a bizarre halftime show with aliens singing Rock Around the Clock, the game eventually concludes with Duff Dry winning the Duff Bowl. I mean, sorry, Washington winning the Super Bowl. And even better than that, next weekend, Daddy Daughter Day goes ahead as usual with an exhausting hype up Mount Springfield. The end. What do you reckon? Yeah, lovely episode, especially because it's it's uh, it's given us a phrase that's rather pertinent in our life at the moment, which is Daddy Daughter Day. So, so sometimes when I spend the day with my daughter, I call it Daddy Daughter Day, which is nice. But there's one thing I want to mention about Troy McClure in that he's not quite washed up there. It's like he's not a major Hollywood actor, but he's on a primetime show, which is on after the Super Bowl. And they did a similar thing with Lionel Hutz, actually, another one of Phil Hartman's characters, which is he's not rubbish. He's not on the floor. He's not completely incompetent. He's just sort of hovering above it, which is what Lionel Hutz used to do. That's an interesting point, though, because, yeah, you, you're quite right. Both of the, the classic Hartman characters at this stage are not as, as abject as they would be. They, they definitely go, go on a downward spiral uh, into incompetence for, for Hutz and um, unemployability for uh, for McClure. Towards the end, his very, very last appearance, Lionel Hutz uh, has become a real estate agent and seems to be doing a lot better. So, unfortunately, we can only speculate what would have gone on with those characters going forward. Mm. Um, and before I make myself sad, let's move on to character debuts and progress. So, um, we do have a character debut here. It's Smooth Jimmy Apollo. He, uh, he, he doesn't appear again. But it's worth me mentioning him at this stage because I hadn't previously noticed he's voiced by Phil Hartman. As soon as I found that out, it's actually pretty obvious, but yeah, just never occurred to me. Um, However, I can partially rescue this section because this episode features the debut of the Malibu Stacy doll line. Okay. Modeled after the iconic real world doll line Barbie as manufactured by Mattel. The name is taken directly from 1971's special edition Malibu Barbie, which used a head mold originally used for Barbie's friend Stacy apparently introduced as a British character from swinging London with mod fashions. In Simpsons continuity, Stacy was originally created in 1959 by Stacy Lavelle, who will eventually meet in season five, episode 14, Lisa versus Malibu Stacy. However, in season five, episode one, Homer's barbershop quartet, Lisa sees what is described as an original Malibu Stacy doll from 1958. It's the one with the huge pointy breasts that was taken off the market when some kid put both his eyes out. Boy, I hope someone and so forth, especially since the two were in the same season and broadcast a mere 13 episodes apart. Although digging a bit further, it turns out they're from different production blocks. So there would have been a gap between their creation. So I think a bit more forgivable. It's only a year out anyway. 
Lavelle originally had a vision for an edible fashion doll, but manufactured it from onion meal, giving it a taste that kids were not enamoured with. The design was lauded nonetheless, and when she recast them in plastic, a legend was born. But Stacy herself was forced out of the company in 1974 due to a combination of thinking that wasn't cost-effective and her funneling of profits to the Viet Cong. Lisa loves Malibu Stacy dolls, but uses them to play out her ideas of modern femininity, which is at odds with the general tone of the doll, which is stuck in a more traditional fashion-forward homemaker role. And the talking version of the doll will bear that out in the aforementioned episode. We should get to that. So I'll simply add that Springfield's biggest Malibu Stacy collector is Wayland Smithers, and he'll see you at StacyCon 94 at the San Diego Airport Hilton. <laughs> Probably also worth noting that we get a hint of the Ralph Wiggum to come in this episode. He mentioned in a class presentation that when the doctor told him he didn't have worms anymore, that was the happiest day of his life, which is probably the most modern Ralph thing he's said to date. He's just referred to as Ralph here, and he won't become a Wiggum officially until season four. I can't actually remember if we've covered him before, because this isn't his official debut. I'll say this now and possibly forget, but let's revisit him when we get to I Love Lisa, and I'll bomb through his profile then. Okay. Are you ready for some did you knows? Mm-hmm. I want you now, other than this first one, they're all American football related. This contains yet another of the Simpsons primetime Emmy Award winning voice performances from this season. This time, and this won't be a surprise, it was Yardley Smith's performance as Lisa that bagged the statuette. And rightfully so, I would say. The episode revolves around the Super Bowl, which will be featured most notably in Season 10, Episode 12, Sunday Cruddy Sunday, where Homer will organise a trip to the Super Bowl to watch the Atlanta Falcons play (laughs) the Denver Broncos. Watched by President Clinton and his wife, Hillary. (laughs) That episode was aired on the same night as the Super Bowl. But it wasn't the program directly after, which, as you touched on earlier, is a coveted slot in US television, as you can often shift a percentage of the massive audience for the game onto the next show. So Fox chose to put the premiere of Family Guy straight after, with that episode of The Simpsons following that. It was a controversial move amongst fans of another Fox cartoon that premiered that year, Futurama, whose creators believed they were being given that slot. To date, The Simpsons has only been the direct lead-out program to the Super Bowl once, with Season 16, Episode 8, Homer and Ned's Hail Mary Pass, in which Homer is tasked with putting the Super Bowl halftime show together. So another football-related one, which I think makes sense. In this episode, Homer bets on the Denver Broncos. In five seasons' time, he'll own them after the events of Season 8, Episode 2, You Only Move Twice. And finally, in this uh, very sports-related section, Washington and Buffalo were the teams that played in Super Bowl XXVI, and Washington did win. When the game was played, three days after this aired. So a correct prediction there by the uh, the showmakers. When the episode was rerun days before Super Bowl XXVII the next year, the show was redubbed to reference the Dallas Cowboys. Now, the Buffalo Bills made the final again. Uh, they were on a bit of a losing streak in Super Bowl finals, which I, I believe is unrivaled uh, since. But the Dallas Cowboys replaced the Washington football team. Um, and obviously, because of the way it was dubbed in, 
they were said to be the winning team. And they were. A second correct prediction by the Simpsons there. So, Tom, got any memeable moments for us? Well, not any major ones. Because although this is a fantastic episode, very famous episode, there's not a huge amount of memeable stuff in it. I've gone for two, which is one you've already done, the coach's hot line. Come on, don't you know how this is costing me money? <clears throat> so there's that one. And there's the bit in church where Reverend Lovejoy says, oh, I'm glad some people could resist the laws of the big game. And this bloke gets up and <laughs> goes, oh, my God, I forgot the game. <laughs> and he likes it. I'm sure I've seen people make memes out of that one. Definitely. Definitely. OK, then. Well, I think that brings us on to Zaire. Mm, yes. So the Democratic Republic of the Congo, formerly known as Zaire, formerly known as the Belgian Congo. That's the subject of my bit for today. So first off, where is it? Now, I know I always do this, so let's get the map out. It's the largest country in sub-Saharan Africa, and it's the 11th largest in the world with an area of 2.3 million square kilometres. That's absolutely massive. It's also a really weird shape with various protrusions forming parts of its borders. Speaking of borders... It shares its borders with a ton of other countries. So here we go. Start off in the north, work around clockwise. So to the north is the imaginatively named Central African Republic with its capital of Bangui just across the border on the other side of the Ubangi River. To the northwest is the recently independent South Sudan. And a bit further around is Uganda, where it shares borders on Lake Albert and Lake Edward. No surprises for guessing who named those. Working clockwise, you get to Rwanda, where Lake Kivu takes up a big chunk of the border. Further south from there is Burundi and then Tanzania. Pretty much the entirety of the Congo-Tanzania border is in Lake Tanganyika. Then to the south is Zambia, and this is where the border gets really odd. So the region that comprises the Katanga province of DR Congo is known as the Congo Pedicle, or Little Foot. And it gives Zambia this weird butterfly shape. It's a result of colonialism as the Belgians came from the north and the British, spearheaded by the always controversial Cecil Rhodes, came from the south. Anyway, more on all that later. To the southwest is Angola, which we've already talked about on episode 33, Angolan Civil War of the Simpsons. To the west is the Atlantic Ocean as DR Congo does reach the sea, at the port of Moanda. It's got a little bit of coastline. Uh, then there's Cabina province, which is a funny little exclave of Angola. Finally, to the northwest is the Republic of the Congo, and this is where most of the action is. So on the border is the DR Congo capital of Kinshasa, and literally on the other side of the Congo River is Brazzaville, the capital of the Republic of the Congo. So after that marathon of political geography, let's move on to the history, where hopefully some of this stuff will start making sense. So it won't come as a surprise to most of you that the DR Congo used to be known as the Belgian Congo, as in, I call it the Spruce Moose, and it will take 200 passengers from New York's Idlewild Airport to the Belgian Congo in 17 minutes. I said hop in. Exactly. So let's talk about Belgium. And just in case people don't know, it's a small country in Western Europe with the Netherlands to the north and France to the south. It also has short eastern borders with Germany and Luxembourg. 
Now, there was a meme posted on mostly from sugar packets, which I think is particularly pertinent here. It's based on the Simpsons episode where Homer gets a lobster and names it Pinchy. When the time comes to throw Pinchy in the pot, Homer sees it as an adorable cartoon character and can't bear to part with it. Marge, however, sees it as this slavering, slobbering beast. The meme in question captioned the cute Pinchy as Belgium in European history, and the slobbering Pinchy is Belgium in African history. So Belgium has the nickname the Battleground of Europe because the old European powers fought a huge amount of wars there. And of course, it was fought over in both world wars. The country of Belgium came into existence in 1830 when it became independent from the Netherlands following the Belgian Revolution. After a brief transitional period, it became a constitutional monarchy with Leopold I being installed as king. Now, he was an interesting choice, as from what I can tell, he had no connection to Belgium whatsoever. He was born in Coburg, as in Saxe-Coburg, in what is today part of Germany. He was a military man and was commissioned in the Imperial Russian Army, where he commanded in the Napoleonic Wars. After Napoleon was defeated, he moved here to the UK, where he married Princess Charlotte of Wales, the daughter of the Prince of Wales, who would go on to be King George IV. Unfortunately, Princess Charlotte died at the age of 21 after delivering a stillborn son. Now, that's an interesting story in itself because her death was mourned greatly here because she was considered the country's best hope for a steady future. If you've ever seen Blackadder III, you'll know how unpopular Prince George was and that his father, George III, was considered mad. Somebody told me my son was here. I wish him to marry this rosebush. I want to make the wedding the wedding arrangements. Anyway, so the hope was that Princess Charlotte would produce an heir as she and Leopold were popular with the public. So after Charlotte died, Leopold's popularity with the British public continued. Around 10 years later, Leopold was looking for somewhere to be king of and being well connected to Britain, Germany and Russia. He was in demand. Greece had recently gained its independence from the Ottoman Empire and they offered him their throne, but he refused, thinking it was too precarious. He eventually reluctantly accepted the throne of Belgium, being accepted as a bit of a compromise candidate as he didn't have links to the Dutch or the French, you know, two rival groups in Belgium who were still rivals today. He became king on July the 21st, 1831, and it's marked as Belgium's national holiday. Leopold I ruled until his death in 1865, when he was succeeded by his son, Leopold II. Now, it's 2020, and the style at the time is to deface statues of old undesirables, Leopold II included. So let's find out why. Around the time of Leopold II's accession to the throne of Belgium, the Congo Basin was being explored by European explorers. Probably the most famous of these was the Christian missionary David Livingston who got lost and had no contact with his fellow Europeans for six years. He was eventually discovered by Henry Morton Stanley, supposedly with his famous greeting, Dr. Livingston, I presume. When Stanley returned to Europe with proof that the Congo Basin could be explored and navigated, he tried to convince people that it was ripe for exploitation. This was a dream shared by Leopold II, who tried to recruit Stanley. Leopold had colonial dreams for Belgium, but he was a constitutional monarch, and he couldn't do anything without the say-so of the Belgian parliament, who refused all of his colonial ideas, which included renting the Philippines from Spain. 
which, which which is a bit of a weird one, but you know, Ferdinand Marcos could have ended up speaking French if that happened. So eventually he found a novel way around Parliament. He would simply do the colonizing himself, bypassing Parliament completely and acting in his own capacity. So the colonization of the Congo Basin was done kind of in secret. So Stanley took the materials to build a bunch of forts and trading stations, used a mix of diplomacy and extreme violence to deal with the native people, and eventually ruled a huge territory which covered what is today the Democratic Republic of the Congo. In 1881, he established Leopoldville, named after Leopold himself. It would go on to become modern-day Kinshasa. It wasn't until 1885 when the rest of Europe considered this official. By then, the infamous scramble for Africa was well underway, with the European powers trying to colonise as much as they could. The Berlin Conference, called by Otto von Bismarck, formalised all of that. In European eyes at least, the vast region of the Congo Basin controlled by Belgium became the Congo Free State, and it was recognised as the private property of King Leopold II, despite the fact that he never went there. Leopold ran the Congo Free State like his own personal fiefdom, and just have to have a bit of a warning here, this is some pretty heavy stuff. The atrocities committed in his name were horrendous. The late 19th century saw huge demand for natural rubber, which was in abundance in the Congo. The state sold land to private companies, and with no local judiciary, they were free to do whatever they wanted to harvest the rubber. The military, known as the Force Publique, was created to facilitate it. Villagers would be forced out of their homes at gunpoint and made to harvest rubber. Sometimes people would be taken hostage to entice others to work. Then, of course, there were the mutilations. The forced labourers were given quotas, and failure to meet these quotas was punishable by death. If the Force Publique killed someone, the authorities required proof, and the right hand of someone was acceptable. This led to a grisly macabre trade in human hands. They became a kind of currency. The logic was that each worker should produce a certain amount of rubber. If they didn't, they should be killed and have their hand cut off and taken as proof. So when it came to harvesting, the authorities were expected to collect either a certain amount of rubber or less rubber than the quota and enough human hands to make up for it. It was absolutely brutal and children were not spared from it either. I mean, wondering why people aren't keen on statues of Leopold yet. But it gets worse. Forcing people out to gather rubber meant they couldn't tend to their crops. So famine ensued. Added to that, diseases such as sleeping sickness, malaria and smallpox killed thousands. In fact, taken together, the population loss during the existence of the Congo Free State was estimated to be anything between 2 and 13 million people. It's absolutely shocking. The atrocities committed in the Congo Free State did not escape international attention. The devastation was witnessed by Europeans, mostly missionaries at first, but others followed. The first person of note to raise the alarm was George Washington Williams, a veteran of the US Civil War and historian. He was sent to Belgium to interview Leopold in 1890, where he was told about the Congo Free State. Impressed by what Leopold told him, he decided to go there to see for himself. He was appalled by what he found, and he wrote an open letter to Leopold, where he called what he witnessed crimes against humanity, which was the origin of the term. Unfortunately, Williams contracted TB and died in Blackpool, of all places, in 1891. Roger Casement produced a report on the Congo Free State for the UK Parliament in 1904, 
and following international pressure, the government of Belgium finally acted and took over the running of the Congo Free State, renaming it the Belgian Congo in 1908. During its existence, several groups fought and campaigned for independence. One such group was the Congolese National Movement, founded by Patrice Lumumba in 1958. Lumumba was imprisoned by the Belgians on the charge of stealing money from a post office. On January the 4th, 1959, a pro-independence protest in Leopoldville turned violent and several hundred died. This spurred on the events that led to the Congo's independence. King Baldwin visited the Congo in that same year to a mixed response. He saw people calling for the release of Lumumba, as well as people chanting for him and calling for independence. Roundtable talks were called between Belgium and Congolese officials, with Lumumba released from prison for them. For Belgium, it was a risk. Believe it or not, they wanted an orderly transfer of power, but the worry was that there wasn't an educated political elite available to take over running the country. They certainly did not want a war. In the end, they ceded to all the Congolese demands and agreed that elections would take place in May 1960 and that Independence Day would be June the 30th, 1960, when the country would become the Republic of the Congo. A 137-seat Chamber of Deputies was created, of which Patrice Lumumba's liberal-leaning MNC won the most with 33, obviously way, way short of the majority. A lot of political manoeuvring followed, which resulted in Lumumba becoming the country's first prime minister, with Joseph Kasavubu of the right-wing Abako party becoming the president. At the independence ceremony in Leopoldville, King Baldwin gave a speech where he said that Belgium's civilising mission, started by Leopold II, was over. Lumumba responded with an unscheduled speech where he denounced colonialism. Now, Lumumba was already unpopular with the Belgian authorities, and that just made things worse. It didn't take long for things to fall apart. Things like ethnic tensions and the administration of such a vast country hadn't been sorted out, and neither had the organisation of the army. Many white Belgians expected the transition to independence to take years, if not decades, so they didn't expect things to change. In the army, the Congolese officers were hoping for a change in structure, promotions, that kind of thing, but the day after independence, Lieutenant General Emil Janssens, the Belgian head of the army, which was still called the Force Publique, gathered his NCOs and wrote before independence equals after independence on a blackboard. On July 5th, 1960, black soldiers mutinied against their white officers at a place called Camp Hardy near Fiesville, close to the capital of Leopoldville. The mutiny spread and escalated, beginning the Congo crisis. Lumumba responded by firing Janssens, renaming the force publique the Congolese National Army, making former army sergeant Joseph Desiree Mobutu the chief of staff, and promoting all black soldiers. Despite this, the mutiny spread and white businesses were looted and white women raped. Belgium responded by sending in paratroopers without permission to protect white civilians, and this really divided president and prime minister. Kasavubu welcomed them while Lumumba saw their presence as an invasion. Lumumba instead requested that the Belgian Navy evacuate white civilians from the port of Matadi, the most inland port of the Congo River. The Navy duly arrived, picked up the civilians, then turned and fired their guns at the port, killing 19 people. This provocation just escalated things, and soon Belgian troops were clashing with the Congolese. They managed to evacuate 10,000 European bureaucrats, leaving the government ministries paralysed. Meanwhile, in Katanga province in the south of the country, Moisi Shombe, 
the leader of the Konakat party, declared independence for the region. He was keen to keep the mining company UMHK on side, and they supported him. UMHK had close ties to the Belgian government, so of course they were happy to support Chambé. Back in Leopoldville, UN peacekeepers arrived. The Bumba initially welcomed them, however they were there to maintain law and order and not to fight the secessionists in the south. The Mumba turned to the USA for help in that matter, but they refused. With no one else to turn to, the Mumba turned to the Soviet Union for support, which of course was a bad move. The Soviets sent a thousand military advisers. Their presence drove a wedge between Lumumba and Kasavubu, and it proved to the Belgians they were right all along. His opponents basically said, he's going to nationalise all the Belgian holdings, and look, he's a full-on communist. The USA believed Congo could turn into another Cuba. Western support for Lumumba disintegrated, and Kasavubu tried to fire him. However, Parliament in response did not support this, and Lumumba announced he was dismissing Kasavubu as president. So already, the newly independent country was facing a constitutional crisis. In amongst all the turmoil, Mobutu staged a bloodless coup and replaced both Lumumba and Kasavubu with a college of commissioners led by Justin Bomboko, putting Lumumba under house arrest. Over in the east of the country, long, long way from Kinshasa, a rebel government was formed, led by Antoine Gizenga. Lumumba managed to escape house arrest and he fled to Stanleyville. He didn't make it and was captured by the army. He was taken back to Fiesville and tortured before being handed over to troops in Katanga. There, he was executed by firing squad, causing international outrage. In another twist, Dag Hammerskold, the UN Secretary General, was killed when his plane crash landed while en route to Katanga to try and negotiate a ceasefire between UN and Katanga forces. His successor, Yu Fant, favoured much more direct involvement rather than just peacekeeping. UN troops occupied Katanga, causing Shombe to flee the country. Their support for the central government ended the succession of Katanga. Following the end of the Katanga secession, attempts were made to reconcile the feuding factions. The constitution was rewritten, making the country into more of a federation. The powers of the president were increased, and Kasavubu brought Shombe back and made him interim prime minister, which is a hell of a move. After Shombe's appointment, the government faced a series of rebellions, most notably the Kwilu Rebellion in Kwilu province, and the much larger Simba Rebellion, which eventually took over much of the east of the country. The Simba named themselves after the Kishwahili word for lion, so it has the same origin as Simba from the Lion King, in case you were wondering. They went so far as to found their own state, naming it the People's Republic of the Congo, obviously fashioned after the People's Republic of China. They had support from both China and the Soviet Union, but lacked the organisation required to make the state last. Shombe and Mobutu fought back against them with mercenary forces, including the British soldier and former accountant Mad Mike Horay. In November 1964, the Simbas rounded up as many white people as they could and held them hostage in a hotel in Stanleyville. They were freed by Belgian paratroopers in an operation that saw over a thousand civilians killed. Nevertheless, the Simbas were beaten and their leadership went into disarray. The arrival of the Belgians embarrassed the central government and Kasavubu dismissed Chambé from his post as interim prime minister. Elections were held in March 1965 and Chambé's party won a large majority of the seats. However, a split in the party shortly afterwards created a lot of confusion. Kasavubu retained the presidency, 
and wanted Everest Kimber, the leader of the anti-Shombe faction, to be prime minister, but parliament wasn't having it. Mobutu took advantage of the paralysis of parliament to take power in another bloodless coup on November 25th, 1965, under the auspices of breaking the political deadlock. He declared a state of emergency that was the last five years. With Mobutu assuming power, the Congo crisis was over. He immediately abolished all political parties, and any military opposition to him was crushed. In 1966, he accused four cabinet ministers, including the former candidate for Prime Minister Kimber, of plotting to oust him. He tried them by military tribunal and had them publicly executed in front of 50,000 people. To consolidate his power, Mobutu founded the Popular Movement of the Revolution, the only political party allowed under his rule. He also consolidated all of the trade unions into one, the National Union of Zairean Workers. In 1970, he held an election where his NPR was the only party and he was the sole candidate for president. Voting was not even in secret. People were told to cast a green ballot if they wanted Mobutu in charge and a red ballot if they didn't. In both circumstances, casting a red ballot immediately identified you as an enemy. Mobutu embarked on a program known as Authenticity, which tried to eradicate European influences. Cities named after Europeans were given African names. For example, Leopoldville became Kinshasa. This extended to the name of the country itself, and it became known as Zaire in 1971. Now, the etymology of the name Zaire is kind of interesting because I've read things that say, oh, look, Mobutu was trying to be anti-European, but he gave his country a Portuguese name. Ho, ho, ho. Indeed, Zaire is the Portuguese word for Congo, but the word Zaire itself is derived from a Kikongo word that means the river that swallows all rivers. So it is a Portuguese word, but it's derived from an African language. As part of his authenticity campaign, Mobutu decreed that any Zairean with a European name should change it to an African one. Not being a hypocrite, oh no, Mobutu changed his name to, here we go, Mobutu Sisi Soko Nkuku Nbengdu Wazabanga, which translates as the all-powerful warrior who, because of his endurance and inflexible will to win, goes from conquest to conquest, leaving fire in his wake. And you thought Idi Amin had a bombastic full name. <laughs> it was also around this time that he dispensed with his military uniform, choosing instead to wear an abacost and donning a leopard skin toque, that brimless hat he, he used to wear. Oh, okay. Now, these would become his trademark look for the next 20 years or so. Mobutu's lifestyle and money hoarding were legendary. He nationalised all industry, giving it to his family members and close confidants to run. He would go on to build palaces, shopping malls, a hydroelectric dam, a nuclear bunker and an international airport at the village of Badalite, near the border with the Central African Republic. You know, couldn't get much further away from Kinshasa right there. This earned the village the nickname the Versailles of the Jungle. Mobutu had a ridiculously elaborate lifestyle and would charter Concorde to fly him to Paris for shopping trips. He amassed a personal fortune of around five billion US dollars during his lifetime. 1974 saw a television event that cemented Mobutu in the world's imagination, the Rumble in the Jungle boxing match between George Foreman and Muhammad Ali. For the coverage, Mobutu was the only Zairean politician who was allowed to be mentioned by name, and people could be heard chanting his name during the bout. Mobutu was seen as anti-communist, 
Therefore, he received substantial support from the West. In the late 70s, the Shaba conflicts saw rebels from neighbouring Angola invade the Katanga region. These rebels were fought off with the help from France and Belgium. Mobutu maintained power throughout the 80s, but the end of the Cold War meant a shift in international attention, and he came under the spotlight as the US no longer needed him to stand against communism. As the 90s dawned, Mobutu's grip on power waned. Under pressure from the international community, he allowed other parties and appointed a transitional government. Soldiers went unpaid and they started to riot. On January 22, 1992, the day before Lisa the Greek first aired, disgruntled soldiers took over the main TV station in Kinshasa. In the mid-90s, the horrors of the Rwandan genocide spilled over into Zaire. The Rwanda Civil War saw the Hutus fight the Tutsis. The Hutus allied with the Zairean armed forces, while the Tutsi militia allied themselves with the forces, with the forces of Laurent Désiré Kabila, starting what was known as the First Congo War. Kabila's AFDL gradually took over the entire country, and Mobutu fled to Togo on May the 17th, 1997. He was quickly moved to Morocco, where he died in Rabat of prostate cancer on September 7th, 1997. Kabila took over Zaire, made himself president, and reverted its name back to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Since then, conflicts in DR Congo have continued. Kabila himself was assassinated by his own bodyguard, and his son Joseph Kabila took over, right in the middle of the Second Congo War. After winning some disputed elections and holding the office of president for 18 years, Kabila stood down. The general election of 2018 was won by Felix Shisekedi, marking the first peaceful transition of power in the country since independence. So there we are, a brief history of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Now, next time you see a statue of Leopold II, give it a kick for me, yeah? Which leaves me with the uh, thankless task of finding a reference to Zaire in uh, in The Simpsons. And as you were talking, I, I really wish I'd uh, copped out and gone for Belgium, because as it turns out, there's an absolute bunch of Belgium references. Um, <laughs> but uh, perhaps we'll cover one of those uh, episodes, so I'll leave all of those for now. And doubly uh, blindsiding me i don't think the zaire were part of the winter olympics in season 21 episode 12 boy meets curl um, <laughs> no it wouldn't have been so that's that's a bit of a shame also googling simpsons zaire brings up a number of mentions of an absolutely lunatic theory that the simpsons predicted ebola which is so utterly stupid and lacking in substance i'm not even going to explain the circumstances so without going into that, it's slim pickings for references. All I've got, unfortunately, is this. The general cycle of bloodless coup and change the name of the country does occur in the actual worst episode ever of The Simpsons. That being season 12, episode 17, Simpsons Safari, which is absolutely terrible and should never be watched. A character called President Muntu is in charge of Tanzania which is renamed New Zanzibar, and then Pepsi presents New Zanzibar whilst the Simpsons are flying there. And Muntu has also been overthrown by the end of the episode, which, once again, I must state, you should never watch. And with that dire warning, we are done. But don't forget you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter at underscore Retrospecticus, email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Bye. 
Thank you.